when I published Ulysses by James Joyce in my little bookshop called Shakespeare and Company in Paris. Look, look, the dust is growing. My branches lost Lord James. Stately, plump, bug bargain. All perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad. And yes, I said yes, I will, yes. And welcome to Bloomcast. And as always, and for the final time here at Shakespeare and Company, I'm joined by the finest and ripest mellow yellow smellow melons in all of Paris, <laughs> Lex Paulson and Alice McCrum. Hello, dear Adam. Hello. Hello. How are you both doing? All the better for seeing you and Lex. We've we've arrived. Yeah, yeah we've arrived. Or have we? Around. <laughs> around <laughs> we've arrived somewhere. Um, with our with our table festooned with books and notes and genmaicha and other stronger um, mm. refreshments. Um, yeah, this will be the last time we're at this table yeah. in this form. Mm. So it's Haunted it's, by the ghost of Sylvia Beach. Haunted by the ghost, well, or, or buttressed by the spirit of Sylvia Beach. Mm. Um, and, uh, and then we're just one step closer to Bloomsday. Yeah. Now, in, um, in Patrick Hastings' book, um, he said, he's talking about the ending, and he said, so whether you feel uplifted or downcast at the conclusion of Molly's soliloquy, you can take solace in the notion that if you don't like the ending, all you have to do is read the book again and it'll be different. <laughs> so true. Um, now, so next, we'll read the next the, what, fifth, sixth time? Third, third. Th- third time you've read it all the way through. Alice, of course, as our first time reader. Um, <laughs> I'd be very interested to know how you both reacted emotionally to concluding this. this well, I, I, first I, time first. Yeah, well, I mean, I, re- I reacted emotionally, as you say. <laughs> I, I um, It was a beautiful sunny day yesterday. I spent the whole morning at home, um, pacing up and down, reading it, reading it out loud, reading it, reading out loud, and then reading the soliloquy out loud to myself at the end. And it really, it really moved me to tears. Mm-hmm. It was so beautiful. Um, and I think what struck me, I'd had a conversation early in the week with um, the journalist Rachel Donadio, who was telling me about her father, who is a um, professor of literature at Middlebury. And she was saying that what he also always cries when he reads the end or teaches the end. And she says of him that he takes very seriously um, the the three places, the three cities at the end and the dates. And he th- he considers those to be part of the text. Um, so Trieste, Zurich and Paris, 1914 to 19. 19- 21 and i was i was also moved by that you know i I thought that that there was real power to the end of the soliloquy but there was also um real power to the geographical um triad and the dates at the end of of the of the book Mm -hmm. it was it was a lovely moment Mm -hmm. i think i had that feeling about the dates this time for the first Mm -hmm. time ever actually just i think it's because in the past couple of years i've been doing quite a bit of reading about the first world war and just really getting a sense of the, the composition taking place while this kind of world historical tragedy was unfolding. And possibly because we ourselves have just lived through, as it were, a world historical moment, or, or are living through, mm-hmm. um, not to say that we hadn't before this, but in a real way, understanding what what a kind of moment in time bracketed by two years feels like, mm-hmm. especially as we emerge from the pandemic. Um, so those those would be the two things that I felt. How about you, it was It was... Equal, it was emotional um, in a very different way from when I first read it. When I first read it, 
and I'm 42 now, I was 19. So, you know, a little bit of a Stephen and Bloom type book ending um, of my own life. But when I, when I first read it, I um, finished the, the soliloquy. It was a spring day, uh, in New Haven, Connecticut. Uh, I was in the reading room of Sterling Library, this hall, this very high ceilinged room with, with the sun streaming in. And I just remember the rhythm of the soliloquy. Mm-hmm. And, and I felt like I was faster and faster and buzzing with this electricity. And by the end, I really felt like I was, I was electrified and levitated above my chair. <laughs> I, I, never, I never felt that way reading a book before. And just the, the, the pace, and especially those last, those last three or four pages, mm-hmm. it just picks up this incredible it you momentum. It, it, it's, it is nothing like it, I think, in literature. Um, and, and this time it was different because I think the experience of, of being with you guys, and when I say you guys, I mean everybody listening to this, um, to this podcast, it's, it's been a collective undertaking in a way that when I first read it, it was in a class, of course, but I, I did feel like I was having this individual revelatory experience. And this time, I think I've just been much more attuned to the way in which relationships and and deep emotional needs and traumas and love and the ability for love to 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 transcend hatred in history um i think i i that's what brought out the the tears in me this time thinking about now what i know about um nora and and james joyce and why he wrote this or why he said that he wrote this and where um, this moment fits into the greater story of Bloom and and his love of his wife and Joyce and his love of his wife. I was um, and all of the things that all of them are trying to um, um, to get over all the pain mm-hmm. that they're that they're working through. That was really present for me in this reading, and and I was sitting like uh, like you, uh, Alice, in a sunny a sunny spot um, in a park uh, in the in the Marais, and uh, right the moment that I finished this sort of gust of wind blew these sort of bits of cotton across the and it was it was as if I was in in the final scene of a movie it was it was um it was powerful it was over overpowering and I hope we can we can plumb the depths in this next hour mm. about uh why this this uh this you know eight set eight unpunctuated sentences mm. of mm. of about five thousand words each mm. um why it has such an effect on mm. us yeah. Mm. yeah yeah I mean for my part it was it was a deeply strange moment emotional for the reasons I wasn't really expecting. It, it, how many? This is your second time. This is my well. It's kind of my third and fourth time oh. because, of course, and this is, this is part of the point is that I have been reading it for the Bloomcast, so reading it to myself, and I've also been reading it while editing, proof listening mm. to more than a hundred different people read extracts for this book, and it just struck me on that final page how it's such a particular way to experience a book. Such an enormous privilege for me to have been able to essentially group together mm. more than 100 mm. friends because most of the people who who recorded readings for us are people that over the last seven years I've been at the bookshop have come here for mm. events. Have, have said us, yes to you. Have said yes. Exactly <laughs> and, and I just don't, you know, I, mm. I'm not going to downplay how at times I found this project overwhelming and frustrating <laughs> and have longed for it to be over and yet it really struck me that I'm never gonna I'm gonna read this book again but I'm never gonna read it again mm. like this I'm never well, possibly any book. I was gonna say are we ever gonna read any book like yeah, this? yeah. <laughs> so many people and I'm probably never gonna sit down you know and discuss a book over so many hours mm. with 
you know, like 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 us three have done. Mm-hmm. And it has been such a rewarding experience and it has transformed Ulysses for me. It's it's made it that kind of that infinite book that mm-hmm. uh, that people talk about rather mm-hmm. than, you know, something limited by its mm-hmm. however many <laughs> copious nine hundred or so pages. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's 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 no going back from this. You know? no. Yeah, and it makes you want to read Moby Dick or sure. Pride and Prejudice or Anna yeah. Karenina with you guys. Yeah. This yeah. Or- <laughs> no, because I th- I think it's worth mentioning. You know, the behind the scenes. Um, it's been the behind the scenes have been as joyful as the as the recording itself, which is to say that we we have a group text and we send each other little messages throughout the week about the book, about correspondences. We meet beforehand for about an hour, an hour and a half, um, and talk about our ideas and bring in um, the ideas of, of of all of you and of all of the secondary commenters on this. Um, so yeah, I think it's worth knowing that because it's been, that might not necessarily, well, we hope it comes across in the expertise of our <laughs> interventions. <laughs> Acquire, hastily acquired expertise at, usually at the but last But we're minute. thinking about this all day long. <laughs> really, I mean, that, that can't be understated how much this book has taken over my professional and personal social life. Not in a way that, that I regret because mm. it has been utterly transformative. And I think as you said, Alice, a few weeks ago, um, in a way that we probably won't fully understand yeah. until several months or several years down the line something just occurred to me i'm curious if you guys if you guys this has occurred to you too we, we've made fun of joyce's the quote often used that he put all the mysteries in to keep the professors busy for 100 years but the fact that the complexity of this book um which some would call its impenetrability but which i think i we agree was more is 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 very complex um that we couldn't have done it alone and therefore, that we had to do it together, and with Colleen and Hastings and Budgeon and Kybird, and, and all of you, and all of you, and all of you, and this, and that this has been a collective enterprise in a way that, if this book is about the opportunities and limitations of discovering other people's consciousness, um, yeah, James because, Joyce wrote this in a way yeah, that allowed us to discover yeah, yeah, that I yeah. discovered how you read a book, Alice, yes, and how you read yes, a book, Adam, and, yes. and and it's like almost Joyce is giving us a present yeah. by making his book so bloody hard. I've also <laughs> discovered how more than a hundred different people will give voice to this book as well, and I think mm. that's one thing that's been so sort of mind blowing about this project is how this book has gone from being one book to being an infinity of books. Yeah, and I think that's what the what. Possibly Joyce couldn't have been able to predict and what the quote keeping the professors busy for centuries doesn't capture. When you think of a professor, you think of her in her office alone, piling over secondary sources, piling over Greek phrases and Latin phrases. And and it doesn't capture that the community spirit that this book has taken on, um, that possibly Joyce, I don't think, knew was going to happen. And on the subject of community spirit. Yes, sir. um, we have a few events just to trail very quickly. Mm. Now, um, I will be just a few adverts. Any of you are in <laughs> Hay Festival um, in the end, at the end of May, first week of June. So hey, hey, hey. When this goes out, it's going to go out on the 28th of May. So you will be, if you're not planning to go to Hay. Go, go say hey to Adam. <laughs> So the 31st of May. Joyce has made us inveterate punsmiths as well, apparently. <laughs> we cannot. Get... Anna so, wants yeah. you to go say hey to him. Yeah. We may not have become geniuses like Joyce, but we're definitely irritating us. <laughs> um, on the 31st of May at 5 30 at Hay Festival, I'm going to be doing a panel on Ulysses. And during that panel, I'm going to be revealing 
our Penelope readers for the first time, um, or the first time publicly, because of course, uh, Lex and Alice, I have given you the list. You've got it printed out in front of you. A few it's of an exciting list. <laughs> worth so worth the that, wait. We know that Deborah Levy is reading. We know that Mina Kandasamy is reading Penelope. We know that Margaret Atwood is reading Penelope. But there is a list of about a dozen other writers and performers here. Um, without, of course, revealing any of the unannounced names, are there any that particularly catch your eye that you're excited about? The, fi- the final, the final reader. Mm. No, it's just it's I hard. Mean, it's, to, it's hard to comment without saying. <laughs> no, and it, I, it's I look at this list of of women, and I I wish we had them in the room with us because one of the things I regret is that um, we yeah there have been all these readers who have who have plenty of intelligent things to, to say about about the book and especially this chapter it being a woman's voice written by a man um i think we uh the more women's voices who can who can tell us what they think to me I, that would help me that would help me be a better reader for sure and now but lex and alice you have both uh, heard the final reading yes our listeners have something quite uh it's special extraordinary and still all right special not only for the way she reads it but as adam has said to us off mic, the background noises give it an extra special oomph. Yes, indeed. So so listen out for that. It will be announced mm. at Hay Festival on the 31st of May. It will be announced in the newsletter uh, a little bit after that. And we have, of course, Bloomsday. Uh, Alice. Yes. So if you haven't done so already, um, head on to the American Library in Paris website and fill out the Google form, um, basically signing up for either your Zoom or in-person presence at the library uh, in the 7th arrondissement will start at 7pm and run for two hours. And we will be addressing all of your questions or as many as we as we can, I suppose, in the second half of the conversation. The first half, we will be offering our final, uh, final for now, thoughts on our experience of reading this enormous book. Mm-hmm. And so that is Bloomsday, 16th of June, beginning at the Irish Cultural Centre at midday with a picnic and readings, continuing at Shakespeare and Company around three, probably from about 3pm to 6pm with more reading, celebration, picnic, and then moving on to the American Library uh, in the evening. Trieste, Zurich, Paris. Mm. <laughs> Triptych, trifecta. Now, we're, um, we're not going to do any correspondence today because we're going to save that for the final yes. bloom. Thank you, those of you who, who've written in, in yeah. past days. We will um, We, we see will you. We, we talked about you. We, we appreciate you. You've given us food you. for thought and you will, and you will, um, you will hear us responding uh, in, uh, on June 16th. In real time. So let's, for one final time, have a recap of the episode under discussion. I am very pleased that this final recap will be by our first time reader. <laughs> I think that's a the good The first time reader is very pleased as well. <laughs> <laughs> she was very pleased writing it this morning. Um, so this is Molly Bloom's closing soliloquy. Um, as Lex mentions, it's eight extended, unpunctuated sentences that fill over 50 pages. The way I'm going to do this, dear listeners, is I will... Uh, give you the header so I'll say sentence one and then I'll give you the recap so I'll do this eight times and I'm, I'm drawing heavily on Colleen here so thank you Colleen sentence one Molly Bloom muses sleeplessly on her husband's unexpected request for breakfast in bed his appetite arises she believes because he came somewhere put that in quotes she suspects correctly that he has been in nighttown She remembers his past flirtations. She remembers, too, the last time Bloom came on her bottom, something that happens quite regularly, we learn. 
Turning to her own flirtations, she knows that Bloom has, I quote, has an idea about her relationship with Boylan. Reflecting on the afternoon she spent with Boylan, we learn that though he too ejaculated outside her, his quote, tremendous red big brute of a thing was ultimately satisfying. Another third party flirtation comes to her mind. This time it's Josie Powell or Josie Breen, who was jealous of Molly and Bloom's relations in the early days of their courtship. She compares her relationship with Bloom to that of Josie's with Dennis Breen. She is, they are, comparatively happy, she decides. Sentence two. Back to Boylan and we discover that his enjoyment of the afternoon was disturbed by the upset of throwaway as winner at the horse race. Molly, for her part, is already impatient for next Monday when they will have sex again. She's impatient too for the concert tour to Belfast. She hasn't sung in public for a year, we learn. If the affair is to last, Molly reasons, she will need new undergarments and she wants Bloom to pay for them. In this way, she thinks he ought to give up his current work and find a salaried position. She is 33, we learn, and feels her youthful beauty is already fading. Sentence three. Molly remembers how Joe Cuff, a former lover, admired her bosom. She feels that Boylan, sucking on her breasts earlier in the day, has made them firmer. She finds that she is, again, unable to wait until Monday for Boylan's next visit. Sentence four, and a train whistles in the distance, interrupting her thoughts as she remembers the heat, the strong east wind, the massive rock, and the dullness of days past in Gibraltar. Life, it seems, is equally dull in Dublin, but there is at least Boylan to liven things up, even if his love letters leave a lot to be desired. Sentence five, she remembers her first love letter from and first sexual experience with a lieutenant of the Royal Dublin Fusiliers. She remembers, too, the visit of US President Ulysses S. Grant and the towing into harbour of a mysteriously abandoned ship. Which really happened in history, doesn't it? Thank you, Mr. Historian. Another train whistle rings in the distance, bringing her back to the song she'll perform on tour. Suddenly, she feels the need to fart and rearranges herself in bed to do it as quietly as possible, for she has no wish to wake Bloom. Sentence six. Thinking about Bloom... She hopes that he will not make a habit of coming back late. His request for breakfast makes her wonder what she will have for supper tomorrow. She muses on a possible menage à quatre between herself, Boylan Bloom and Mrs Fleming, the cleaning lady. Though she finds Bloom's presence at times a nuisance, she does not like to be alone at night, we learn. So she will have to put up with it, which is to say him. She thinks about her daughter Millie and Millie's growing independence. Her reflections on Bloom bringing Stephen into the kitchen are interrupted by the arrival of her period. Proof, at least, she thinks, that she is not pregnant. Sentence 7. Sitting on the chamber pot, she remembers a visit to the gynaecologist brought on by frequent masturbation in the early days of her courtship with Bloom. Returning to bed, she scorns the company Bloom kept during the day, even if she doesn't admit to herself that Simon Dedalus has a fine voice. She wonders what his son, Stephen, is like. She wonders what Bloom is up to in suggesting a greater intimacy with him. In this way, she happily envisions a romantic future with Stephen, a poet, as she is fond of poetry, we learn. Sentence eight. Her envy of parents who have a son like Stephen recalls her own tenderness for dead Rudy. Hoping Stephen might stay, trying to get to sleep, she plans to excite Bloom tomorrow with nice food, flowers in the house and the invitation 
to yet again come on her bottom. The mention of flowers awakens her sense of marvel at nature and its works. She can't imagine that anyone could doubt the existence of God given the stupendous phenomena of the natural world. Roaming from flowers to the sun, her mind settles on the day she and Bloom lay together on Health Head. Before replying to Bloom's proposal of marriage, the sun shines for you, he said. She remembers a world in Gibraltar that Bloom never knew. The people, the sea, the streets, her first love. Back on Health Head, and she asked him with her eyes to ask again, yes. And then he asked me, would I yes, to say yes, my mountain flower, and first I put my arms around him, yes, and drew him down to me, so he could feel my breasts, all perfume, yes, and his heart was going like mad, and yes, I said yes, I will, yes. Thank you. Wow. <laughs> every time, every time I hear that sentence, particularly read it or hear it read aloud, I, I, get, I, get, I get shivers. Mm. Especially, well, the final yes is capitalised. Yes. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. There was no way to summarise the end without reading it. It is impossible. And I will say that, um, you know, I miss a lot out and, and I, I think that hopefully, our, my hope is that our discussion now of this episode will basically totally undermine the summary because the summary <laughs> um, can only capture so much and really only captures about 15%. Mm. <laughs> mm. So, so um, I like I need to pull myself together here. Um, <laughs> Stop crying. Stop, cry- <laughs> <laughs> Stop crying. Um, so one way in, I mean, there's there's just so, so, so much um, to think and say about, about Molly Bloom's soliloquy. Um, but let's start by thinking about what, the soliloquy form um gives us um joyce apparently was thinking of this last chapter first in the form of letters from molly to bloom um he threw that out so what what, what do you guys think about the his choice of of um of the soliloquy form um i suppose well, my my way into it was trying to think what it was that was different about molly's soliloquy than for example so-called stream of consciousness that we've mm. been discussing Stevens, uh, yeah, so, for example. Yeah, so for example, Proteus. the beginning of Proteus and the ineluctable modality of the of the visible. And it struck me that what, in, at least in, in, in the context of Ulysses, what is different and what makes this perhaps a soliloquy rather than stream of consciousness is that the active reflection yeah. on a subject. Whereas I think in the ineluctable in the ineluctable modality of the visible, it's a little bit more rambling. It's rambling, it's a little bit, bit less directed, I should say. The outside influences mm. are coming and Stephen is mm. letting his his consciousness flow, letting exactly, it yeah. take its path. Yeah. Mm. Molly is asking herself questions. Mm. And all of these questions seem to originate from one particular incident at the, which she references at the very beginning, which is that Bloom has come into bed and he has asked her to make him breakfast in bed, mm. something which he has never seemingly done mm. before. And this, I think, is what kickstarts Molly's reflection. And indeed, she comes back to it mm. uh, several times throughout this soliloquy. So for me, one th- the, I suppose the principal reason for, for the soliloquy form, the, pr- the principal function, is to allow Molly to interrogate this particular occurrence, this strange event mm. of Bloom asking for breakfast mm. in bed mm. from many different angles. Yeah, I think the point about... Um... So the only time she's interrupted, right, are these two um, train whistles. 
and this is really important because we we have we had the similar discussion in the Norska episode where Bloom is sitting on the rock and we said it's because and, and I think Hastings made the point because he's not moving and because there is um there are fewer distractions than in other episodes we really that that is his most sustained um stream of consciousness but to Adam's point about really lack of lack of distractions here we're we're seeing and Kybin makes this point um thoughts in the very process of their formation in other words thoughts kind of see you generous yeah in fact there are there are, i guess you could say there are two external inter- interjections which are the trains but there are also two internal sort of interjections which mm. are her father and, and her period, period. Yeah. yeah 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 and and um we, we do get I think your your point about about Stephen is also really interesting because Molly Bloom's the inside of her mind is very different mm-hmm. from the minds of the two other protagonists of the book, um, Bloom, Bloom and Stephen. Kybird says um, in their monologue, Stephen and Bloom used a staccato telegraphic language of logic, as if aware of the need to control otherwise threatening feelings which might take over. So Bloom, as uninhibited as he is, he is both. Alice, you, you mentioned in a previous episode, kind of stopping himself short when it comes to talking about his bowel movements, for example, even to himself. Um, uh, you know, the, the superego of society, we got into Freud last time, um, is still present in, in, in Bloom's mind. Um, and, uh, and what Kybert says is that they, Bloom and Stephen, internalize far more of the system which she, Molly Bloom, resists. Her refusal to employ the usual niceties of grammar is a sign of just how little mastered she is by outside forces. Her thoughts are fully her own in a way that neither Stevens nor even Leopold's have ever managed to be. What do you guys think? Well, I also think, you know, you mentioned Freud and this is great, right? From a Freudian perspective, she's lying back in the bed hmm. on the couch. Yeah. Psychoanalyzing herself. Yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of mind is that? I mean, we know it's different from Stephen and Bloom's, but mm. what, how, how is it different? Then? How would you describe it? So I think um, it's a great question. I think there are two th- parts of it that struck me well there are three parts um first it's an intelligent mind although it's intelligence that we haven't necessarily encountered um in either Stephen or bloom so we know that she's she's well read in the sense that she uses words like impudence um when she's describing bloom um she uses the word flagellate which she learned from one of the semi-erotic novels that bloom um gave her um, she also makes fun of other people's intelligence. And so she makes fun at one point of Bloom's intelligence when she's thinking about why uh, Mrs. Maybrick poisoned her husband. She says, uh, white arsenic, she put it in his tea of flypaper, wasn't it? I wonder why they call it that. If I asked him, which is to say Bloom, he'd say it was from the Greek, leave us as wise as we were before. <laughs> um but she's also yearning for other intelligence and other intelligent minds. And so when she discovers that Stephen is a poet, um, she remarks um, uh, of, of people who don't know poetry, Hugh the ignoramus that doesn't know poetry from a cabbage. Um, we know that she speaks. Which is Blazes Boylan, just to, to, to put that out there, right? She, she, she does not have a lot of nice things to say about, this, about this, stupid about people. This lover and yeah. about stupid people in general. Yeah. She speaks Spanish. We learn um, on page 928. Yes, we have reached 928. Um, we learn too that she's she has an artistic mind. Um, so we learn that she, she says, I always liked poetry when I was a girl first. I thought um, he was a poet. She says of Stephen, like Byron. Um, and I think really the most important 
type of mind that she is is that she's a strong mind um and this is this is Colleen and I couldn't really say it better myself so he says that Joyce uh, did feel he had created a character who in some ways surpassed him is indicated by one or two incidents that occurred shortly after the book was written first Joyce wrote a parody of the song Molly uh, Brannigan, in which the mythical superhuman qualities are even more strongly emphasised than in the text itself, and the author himself is a sadly, if humorously, diminished figure, clinging like a child to the clouds that are your petticoats. Joyce, uh, Killeen goes on to add, also had a dream of which there are different versions, but in both of which Molly declares her independence from her creator and indeed threatens him with death. All of this is important evidence of the the degree to which Molly has outpaced her maker. Yeah. I mean, Patrick Hastings, I assume, referencing mm. the same dream there, but <laughs> picks out another point of it where he says that Molly chastises Joyce in this dream for getting involved in her affairs. Mm. I think that's totally right. And 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 um, just the last few days, I've been listening to um, an old teacher of mine who was uh, Harold Bloom, a different Bloom, who he insisted on calling Bloom Poldy just to just to make sure. And, and when we were in his class, that we did not confuse them. <laughs> And um, and he in 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 writing about Shakespeare, um, I was listening to a to a interview that he did on on Hamlet, and he insists with with I think a great deal of justice that the the sign of Shakespeare's genius, and he also would say this about Joyce as well, is creating a character who surpasses goes goes beyond you that consciousness that you no longer mm. fully control mm. that in a sense has a life of its own mm. and the way that that hamlet is rebelling against the play that he's in he's yeah. in this kind of revenge yeah. play yeah. and hamlet completely doesn't want to play the part that he's being forced to play and right and so lex you talked about this this force and this rhythm that we feel as as we head towards the final yes and i think it's that's that's when molly is is really taking over it's, and and taking flight yes right? exactly. and, and refuses to be to be uh, to be suppressed yeah. Mm. I wonder if there's something in the because obviously this is the section without any punctuation. Uh, and we know through the history of the book that uh, if this was actually taken out very near the end, actually, I think maybe even at the proof editing stage, Joyce mm. decided to remove all of the all of the punctuation. But it seems quite fitting in a way because the, the punctuation is essentially what constraints a block. Uh, uh, it's a for sure. And, yeah. and in removing it, it's almost like Joyce is saying that the 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 structures which have allowed me to to control and contain the language up until this point, mm. because these are things which perhaps I feel I can and should have control over, mm. I no longer have. This yeah. has to exist outside of the yeah. sort of the structures of of language as we have them. Yeah. And, and given how playful and experimental he's been, it's just incredible to me that he didn't he that this wasn't in his mind when he started the book. That this book, as as we've said before, is one of the few great works of literature that was kind of revised in process. I think of Don Quixote as well, how the yeah. part two like is in, is written in a world where everyone's already read part one. Um or and Dickens or Dickens novel that was that were that that were still um, you know, serialized. But but here it's it's just it feels so indelible and right that this would be the that this would be and for all the reasons you say that it, it is the least constrained. Uh even less constrained than Circe in some ways, which still has the form of a of a play. And and yet it was kind of his final insight yeah, you know it was yeah. his final brainstorm he thought it was going to end with Ithaca and like nope here we, here's what we're going to do we're going to take you inside Molly's head lying in bed with with the now snoring Leopold Bloom okay so then the question follows how do we feel about a man taking us into a woman's head yeah help by the way 
Wow. I can't believe Adam and I are looking at each other being like, who wants to <laughs> answer this one? I, I've actually been waiting for months okay, now to, okay, know, okay. to know what you think. I, well, I think, I think two things. The first thing I think is, well, thinking of the spirit of the times, how does this discussion fit into larger discussions about gender now as non-binary, as we're moving away from traditional gender roles? So I hesitate intervening as a woman. Uh, although I do think there are... Um, whether you are a woman or whether you identify as one, there are moments in this episode that um, I was so moved by in the sense of um, this, this, I, I couldn't imagine how a man would have would have known this. And clearly he's either very attuned to the women in his life or he's had some serious explicit conversations with them about the vicissitudes of their emotions and their emotional experience. I mean, it's as specific as when he... So, so in I think a previous episode, um, Bloom lowers himself down over the stairs to kind of get into his house through this other entrance, and because um, Joyce wasn't in Dublin at the time, he wrote to somebody in Dublin saying essentially like, "Is this possible? This is this is the measurement that I've decided," mm-hmm. um, and and that kind of specificity uh, and insight struck me here in the episode. So these are the kind of points that I wrote down that. I, Again, I, I I would never have expected to read to read a man writing about the female experience in this way. So there's um, the dis the, the dissatisfaction of sex, of specifically how men have sex and have women have sex. And so she says early on, they want to do everything too quick, take all the pleasure out of it. She uh, talks about how she's aging, um, and this is a concern that I think is even more kind of pressing for women now. The pressure of of how how one looks, especially how one appears online. So she says, I'll be 33 in September. Will I? What? Oh, well, look at Mrs. Galbraith. She's much older than me. I saw her when I was out last week. Her beauty is on the wane. Um, The specificity of how women receive sex on sexual positions. So having to lie down for them better for him uh, put it into me from behind. So like adjusting one's body when having sex. Um... On the feeling of having, I mean, maybe this is a universal experience, a sweaty bottom. <laughs> I've never had one once in my life. <laughs> but well, you'll maybe, have to, but now that, I, but now I that I've read Molly Bloom, I know what it I feels think like. It's, I think it's a sweaty bottom and I think it's a sweaty bottom and having, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know what it's like to have a sweaty bottom and also have your period at the same time. But she says, I used to be weltering then, this is in Gibraltar, then in the heat, my shift drenched with the sweat stuck in the cheeks of my bottom on the chair and then add a period into that mix. It's it's really not very comfortable. Um, she says explicitly, I never came properly till I was 22 or so. It went into the wrong place. So this idea of coming and coming properly. Uh, and then on, on just on the experience of receiving <laughs> one's period. Um, so she says, uh, have we too much bl- blood up in us or what? Oh, patience above, it's pouring out of me like the sea. <laughs> I think a lot of women have experience. Oh, patient above, it's pouring me out of me like the sea. So, um, and I think a way to frame this is Molly um, says of Bloom, and this is why maybe, and we're going to talk about the healthiness of their relationship, but she says of Bloom, yes, that was why I liked him because I saw he understood or felt what a woman is. And I think in this episode... Um, Joyce understood and feels what a woman is. Was there was there any point just to be devil's advocate? Yeah. Was there any point when you read this and you were like, ah, 
this is a false note. You know, this is a man Ooh, writing a woman's voice. Sweet question. Um, I mean, she says gonna, some uh, things like like women, like oh, you know how women we cry when, when they're talking about the 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 political fight that she has with Bloom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's interesting. I have more to say about that. I'll, I'll think about it. One thing that Patrick Hastings. It's a great question. When, um, Molly was just thinking about other women and said, "Well, we're a pack of vicious little bitches." Or something like yeah. That. Like, if whether that is sort of something which men think that women think of each other mm. like did that did that ring in some way false to you or did that seem to fit with i think well yeah i think i think um kybid makes the point that early commentators on this have said that she contradicts herself a lot mm. so she she says um one thing about a character and and is chastises them for it and then um extols another character saying it later and that this is a classic example of a of a contradictory um female mind um i don't agree <laughs> don't, don't we all contradict ourselves all the time if, if don't been, we all contain multitudes in, in a sense if it had been presented as a kind of um sort of idealized mm. version of, of women's mind it would be unconvincing right? right and this maybe we can we can relate back to penelope in in homer oh yeah so talk about the correspondences well i mean one interesting thing of if course, there are is any that, is that um i mean penelope and ulysses penelope and odysseus have a kind of unusual marriage in the sense that uh, I would say unusually egalitarian for you know Bronze Age Greece, <laughs> um, which in which that Penelope is still in charge of the household while he's been gone for now nearly twenty years. Um, she is using her wits to hold off these suitors, mm. and even when Odysseus actually makes it back to Ithaca, she does not. Mm. Uh, just you know, uh, throw open the doors and say, "Come back to bed." She puts one final, you know, cognitive intellectual challenge of Ferdisus, which is, which is involves their bed and their bed having been built into a, a, mm. a tree, mm. and um, and so she is she's a uh, a woman who has survived on her strength, on her creativity, um, and that Homer I think um, presents it a very multi dimensional. Way more so than, for example, Helen, uh, which I don't think I don't think she's a particularly multi-dimensional character in, in Homer, but I think Penelope is, and I think that this this the centrality of the bed um, to the Nostos to the homecoming of Odysseus is um, is it may be the most important parallel for me. Mm. So, Alice, you, you mentioned con- contradictions, which so it's, I loved in the first um, in the first passage, uh, like in the very you know, very very early in the in the chapter, and she's thinking about Mrs. Reardon. And she says, too much old chat in her about politics and earthquakes and the end of the world. Let us have a bit of fun first. Mm-hmm. And if we think of that as, in a way, a cri de coeur, like a, one of the statements of Molly Bloom's, you know, feelings about life in the world, mm-hmm. um, it's a great rejoinder mm-hmm. to both Stephen and Bloom, right? That Stephen, who is taking everything seriously, he's pretending not to, but he he is taking himself more seriously than anything else he did, (laughs) as well as Shakespeare and Dante and the Catholic Church and Irish history, et cetera. But, and then, and then, and then Poldy, he's, he's not self-serious in a, in an off-putting way, but he certainly is inquiring and Mm. earnest and he wants to, you know, improve the community. Um, And, and I, I think about the kind of the dynamic between, you know, an ancient philosophy between the, the, the Confucian or Stoic, idea of, of trying to make the world more harmonious and ordered. And then you had these responses from the Taoist point of view or the Epicurean point of view, which which is, you know, stop trying so hard to make the world the way you want to make it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, why don't you enjoy this short bit of life that we have? Uh, and and Molly is extremely in 
uh, in touch with nature and the beauty of nature. She talks about flowers. She talks about the mm-hmm. sea. Um, she's a musician, right? It's just, so I, you know, all of the all of the sights and sounds and smells of Gibraltar, which are mm-hmm. really the the most some of the most vivid parts of this of this chapter, and and that felt very Taoist in in a way to me mm-hmm. that she's answering. Uh, these other consciousnesses in a totally original and and um, and very moving way. Can you say the chorus again? Um, too much old chatting her about politics and earthquakes and the end of the world. Let us have a bit of fun first. See, I think of that, and I think that strikes so resonantly with today and and the the chat about the end of the world and the Anthropocene and and this kind of stale speech online on social media and and people not having fun. <laughs> and so. Is having fun the reason Molly is having the affair? Oh, good question. Why is she having the affair? Yes. What is she looking for from life? <laughs> what is she looking for from life? Well, you might ask the question. Um, no, actually, I am curious, I Alice. Again, what, do you, what is your what is your what, what, what is your uh, feeling about this? Why, um, why do you, why do you think she's sleeping with Boylan and maybe maybe others in the past? So I think that you know. So, so you ask the question: um, What are what are Joyce's maybe blind spots here? For me, it's less about. <laughs> Joyce's blind spots and more about the people who have commented on the chapter's blind spots. And so um, there's this kind of narrative, I think, that I, I almost kind of picked up, this one-eyed narrative, um, reading the secondary literature on this, that here is an example of a fully sexually liberated, sexually free woman. Um, and this is Colleen's point, but I think it's it's it holds up when you when you find textual evidence, which I did. So he writes um, of readings of Molly in the past. He says Molly therefore has been misread. Indeed, he would go to far so far as to say that she's been monstrously misread. Mm. The idea that a generalized imaginative sexual longing uh, could coexist with a strong aversion in particular sexual instances seems to have been too much for critics to take. Her attitudes to men and her social attitudes generally are nuanced, refined and discriminating. And this is a really key point, right? On the one hand, that she's a sexual being, she has uh, imaginations about sex, but then not all of her experiences about sex are pleasant. In fact, many of them are very unpleasant. Um... And so, you know, even thinking about her interactions with Boylan, I'll just read this to you and you tell me if you, th- if you think this sounds like a great time. Um, making us like that with a big hole in the middle of us, like a stallion driving it up into you because that's all they want out of you with that determined, vicious look in his eye. I had to half shut my eyes. Later, she says, I didn't like him slapping me behind going away so familiarly in the hall, though I laughed, I'm not a horse or an ass. Um, then this is on of Boylan sucking her breast. He said it was sweeter and thicker than cows. Uh, then he wanted to milk me into the tea. Well, he's beyond everything. I declare somebody ought to put him in the budget. Um, and then she describes again of sex elsewhere. The thing has come on me. Yes. Now, wouldn't that afflict you? Of course, all that poking and rooting and plowing he had up in me now. So I think, <laughs> why is she having the affair? I think she wants to have good sex. Right. Not I just d- any sex, but actually... Really I good. don't know that she's having good sex. And I think like... With like, well, w- with Blazes, but also with other men in, in the episode. And I think, you know, if, if, she, if she identifies that she never came properly until she was 22, mm. you can be sexually liberated and want to 
have people suck on your breasts and you can also feel deeply uncomfortable when someone slaps your ass mm-hmm. or calls you or calls you a cow mm. right and and the things and what's what's really fascinating of course is that she has things that she wants in bed and bloom does too mm-hmm. and in a funny way they're actually pretty complimentary i mean she has these moments of fantasy where she's thinking about what it would be like to have a penis and mount a woman. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and she's has moments of, of kind of that desire to dominate as well as to, to, to be dominated. Of course, Bloom wants nothing more as we found out from Cersei than to be dominated by a woman. Yeah. And so in a sense, they're, they're, they're pretty suited for each other on a sexual level. Mm-hmm. If, right. If they can get to the heart of this, this, this separation, this, um, you know, this rift in their in their bed. I was going to make a similar point, actually, about their sort of um, compatibility in that way, because at the moment, Molly describes him, uh, young Bloom, as being too beautiful for a man. Mm. Um, and so this is, comes back to the thing we've been talking about, um, about Bloom from the, from the very beginning, is this sort of the uh, very presence, uh, the, the very real presence of the female side to his, mm. his character. Molly, on the other hand, as we learn in this this chapter, is an is an army child. Mm. Now, exactly, she was brought up. This in is a really very, important. Very this is this is really important. Yeah. Thing. yeah. Um, and do you guys catch the this this stra- these strange offhand references to her mother? So we we mm. know that her mother's name is Lunita Laredo. Mm-hmm. Um, Spanish. We know that. We know that, <laughs> and we know that that she is that she that she was gone. Right. That you know mm. she says. Um, uh, she says, what is it? Yes, right. Um, where would they all be? Um, where would all of them be if they hadn't a mother to look after them? What I never had. Mm-hmm. Right. So growing up in this very male do- uh, dominant environment around not just male, but like soldiers. Right. And on Gibraltar, hyper masculine environment um, in uh, without a strong mother figure. Um, I think that's. That's fundamental, and and and, and Kybird, uh points out that uh, you know one of as we've learned from Bloom, he yearns to be a parent, and even mothering Molly, right, in a sense that yeah. that um, you know by making her tea and and you know bringing the 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 clattering tray up up mm-hmm. the stairs, um, and she allows him to perform that role with her. Uh, and so I'm quoting, quoting Kybird here. Thus, Bloom is the mother Molly never had, bringing her breakfast in bed and finding her special treats. Well, Ford, she, Ford would love that. She, yeah, well, of course. <laughs> she fears that at 33, she may be aging and less attractive. In these moments mm. of unhappiness, she turns to men. But what she seeks is not really sex so much as emotional security. Mm. Her childhood friendships were transitory. Again, military base. Mm. So her desire is for the desire of her man. So, of course, she wants sex, but I think she also, I mean, she she says, a woman wants to be embraced 20 times a day. Mm. Him so cold, never embracing me. It's it's the coldness yeah. of Coldy, yeah. not his sexual inadequacy or not any, anything morally wrong with him. Um, she is admiring of him, but also annoyed by him and also jealous mm. of the people he's with, which is mm. like, guess what? A married couple, right? <laughs> as as Adam and I have found out, recently married, for me anyway, and uh and that's that's feels like a healthy relationship with one's partner and not one where she's running to get something that she can't get from her partner but something that that because of this the death of their of their infant and this is something I actually want to ask you guys as well did you get the sense from from this chapter that um the reason they haven't slept together properly again to borrow the english word in in uh in 10 years is more blooms doing than molly's mm. I think like a lot of things in this chapter, it is quite 
ambiguous mm. um, because what we learn in Ithaca is that you know what this slept together properly means. It doesn't mean that they haven't had intercourse. Right. It's just they haven't had complete right. intercourse. So they have had penetrative sex, but Bloom has not finished inside Molly. Molly. He has not climaxed inside Molly. Now, and if you think about what that means, what does that mean? Bloom has had a failed father fatherhood. Mm-hmm. His son, who, as we found out from Cersei, mm-hmm. is the continuation of a male line. Mm-hmm. You know, Bloom's father's name um, is Rudolph. Rudolph's mm-hmm. father's name was Lipoti. Mm-hmm. And Bloom was passing on his father's name to his son. His son dies, yeah. right, as an as an 11-day-old infant. And and you can imagine that if if a Freudian analyst was available, um, or just, you know, an intuitive medical professional, uh, this, this connection between Bloom's specific sexual problem and his feelings of failed fatherhood, mm. it's not that weird a relationship. I mean, this is something that they could probably work out. But the thing that's fascinating is that it's there's clearly not a lack of desire there. Exactly. That's very, exactly. Speaking as a man, there is a very mechanical aspect to mm. sex, which Bloom is clearly, you know, he's still... Capable, he's still desirous mm, mm. of Molly. And mm. desired, right? And desired, she, right? she sees that him also as being desired by these women walking around the city. Yeah. So it's, yeah. So but that's, but the question of Rudy is an interesting one because one thing that really struck me in this reading is how much work Molly still needs to do about Rudy. Yeah. I mean, she almost brushes it off. She's sort of, mm. I wonder, let's, she, 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 she thinks about it a couple of times, but she, she, she doesn't deeply engage with it, at least in this soliloquy. Whereas mm. it's clearly something which has been playing on Bloom's mind like repeatedly throughout throughout this day. And you know, supposedly, at least at the beginning of the day, a day more or less like like any other. This is something mm. which is very present in Poldy's thoughts all the time. Mm. Um, and so this I wonder if that feeds into the question about like why, you know, why the the they have not had proper intercourse for uh, however many years. You know, it could I think the ambiguity ambiguity of the chapter implies it could be equally coming from Molly as from Blue. Can we, just before we move off that point, go go ahead, go ahead. Just before we go off that point, though, I want to read the two passages, this very, very short passages that that are, that address this ambiguity. Okay, so she says, this is on my page 774, I'm Modern Library. Um, After all, why not? I saw him driving down to the Kingsbridge station with his father and mother. I was in mourning. That's 11 years. She's she's talking about his memory of Mm -hmm. Steve, her memory of Stephen Dedalus as a Mm -hmm. little boy. Um, um, in mourning that's 11 years ago now yes he'd be 11 though mm-hmm. what was the good in going into mourning for what was neither one thing nor the other of course he insisted he'd go into mourning for the cat I suppose mm-hmm. animal consciousness mm-hmm. he's a man now by this time now he's now she's thinking about Stephen he was an innocent boy then um, brushed off maybe but yeah. I let's I will come and put a point in it and then and then two pages later she says um that disheartened me altogether, I suppose. I oughtn't to have buried him in that little woolly jacket I needed, yeah. crying as I was, but mm. give it to some poor child. That's a very Bloomian thing to say, mm. in a sense. But give it to some poor child, but I knew well I'd never have another. Also interesting. Mm. Our first death, too, it was. We were never the same since. Mm. Oh, I'm not going to think myself into the glooms about that anymore. Mm. So, I mean, is it that she's that she's suppressing something and not working through it? Or is it that she had more equanimity. I mean, she was she gave birth to this child. So presumably she suffered in that in that moment. But it's 10 years later. And maybe she and you know, the fact that Bloom has suffered and continues to dwell in it, maybe 
partially in reaction to that, she is saying we should move on. We should yeah, move yeah, on yeah. with our lives. I think here, there's something about the, the t- just the use of that um, the blooms. The it blooms. seems mm, so yeah. frivolous in a way. Mm. Um, oh, break, break, break well, the tie. What do no, you think? About I, no, I mean, I think one way, this isn't really breaking the tie, but you could add in another um, point to the discussion, which is okay, so we don't really know about her relationship with Rudy because it's non existent because he died. Mm-hmm. We do know about her relationship with Millie. What can that tell us? Yes, good point. Yes, good. And what do you think? What did you see in, in her relationship with Well, Millie? this, I mean, again, this is to the point of maybe the blind spot of, of comment, commentary on the, on the episode, but. I think her relationship um, with Millie is is quite rivalrous, um, and they don't seem to have a, a a very great relationship. She's aware that Millie is gaining more independence. She's aware possibly that Bloom orchestrated for Millie not to be there so that she could somehow have the affair without Millie knowing. Yes, that's very interesting. Um, I think, and she's also aware that she's getting older and that she's losing her her looks and that just as and this is the experience of many mothers just as she is is losing her looks her daughter is becoming a woman a woman it's very interesting i mean she she's 33 and millie's 15 has just turned 15 mm. we have and we have to put it in the context of 100 years ago where 15 was really one's one's um that I suppose that at the height of one's sexual powers and 33 was Juliet really, was 14, really right? old. And Romeo and Juliet. Exactly. Right? And, and 33, 33 was... was one foot in the grave. <laughs> Happily, we've 33 moved on. is the new 80. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Alice says to, to a table that with, you know, 40 plus year old uh, guys sitting around it. Thanks, Alice. Um, but, um, but no, I mean, I, I, I think what you're saying is mm. that maybe Millie, if we look at how she looks at Millie as as maybe a refusal to grow up and enter this or a, a resistance mm. to mm. entering um, the next phase of her life, that she wishes that she was still looked at and desired like she was in Gibraltar by those officers mm. and as she was by by Bloom and, and that this affair might be filling an emotional need and certainly filling the emotional need more effectively than the sexual one. Mm. Mm. Potentially, I think also you know you mentioned um, this is a portrait, a drawn out portrait of a long term relationship, mm-hmm. and so we we will ask the questions: Are Molly and Paul the good match? Are they suited for each other? What struck me in this episode was first of all the discomfort around sex, but actually behind that the really beautiful descriptions of how they care for each other in kind of yeah. mundane mm. um, yes. ways. That to me, that's that's what love is. I mean, she, she the, all of the sex, why is she having the affair? That's desire, that's orgasming, that's, you know. Intimacy. In, yeah, in, in some way. But then behind that is love. And I think, are they a good match? You know, is anyone a good match? But I do think there's love between them. And there were these two beautiful moments that I think speak to this portrait of, a, of, this, of this relationship. The first is that, uh, and, you know, you would tell me <laughs> better than I would know myself, but... Um, in other words, uh, there's this moment where he's, I guess, I guess he's kind of flirting with this young girl and she knows when he's going out to see her because he'd refused to eat the onions that night. <laughs> you know, so she, she, they're so attuned to each other's habits and, mm. and, um, and thoughts that they're, 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 they're operating on another level. And then the other lovely description I thought was, she says of him, whatever he does, he always wipes his feet on the mat when he comes in wet or shine and always blacks his own boots too and always takes off his hat when he comes up in the street. I think, I think that's really, really important point that the, the question of, their, sort of this representation of a long-term relationship. Mm. One thing I realised in this reading, actually, I mean, Lex, you spoke earlier about how 
uh, you first read essentially the book as Stephen and then read it as Bloom, and that was a similar thing. Mm. You said you said that too. Yeah, yeah similar you said thing to me. And I also realised in reading this that actually the relationship between Molly and Poldy has been going on sixteen years. They've been married sixteen years, so they've been together sixteen to seventeen years, which is exactly the current duration <laughs> of, of my relationship. Oh. And one thing. 16 years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I think, yeah. How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> we saw the pictures of, of, your, of your daughter today, so it seems to be going. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, but one thing... I mean, yeah, really it's... Uh... striking is how this episode captures the nuance yeah. of a long-term relationship. And that is the the depth of the love, but also the the way that... You, know, you don't you don't get you don't get through sixteen or seventeen years without any scars, I guess. Mm. And the way you kind of you negotiate and navigate around them as a couple mm. is crucial, I think, for 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 maintaining and sustaining a relationship. And the the expression that kept coming back to me uh, was about friendship, actually, rather mm. than a relationship. Mm. But it seemed crucial to this episode. Was I remember somebody I can't remember who it was, but much wiser than me saying, "You can never make a new old friend." And Hmm. That kept coming back to me because it struck me that, you know, Molly is looking for something. She's in a, in a sense kind of experimenting with new relationships, mm. new experiences with Blaze's Boy and others, as is Bloom with his uh, various correspondences and things like that. And yet one thing that is very clear is like you, you can never make a new long-term relationship. <laughs> like this, what Bloom and Molly have after being together for, for 16, 17 years is irreplaceable. Now, that doesn't, mm. of course, mean that, you know, if somebody is in a poisonous or toxic relationship, they should stay in it because... L- of, listen uh, up, because listen up, readers. <laughs> there's something to be acknowledged and celebrated about a certain yeah. intimacy, I guess, a certain closeness that you get through time and which it strikes me that, that both Molly and Leopold are cherishing. And just to finish... Um, you know, we're talking about how compatible they are. And Lex, you, you mentioned Taoism earlier. And the the image that came to mind uh, when, you, when you talk about particularly that Eastern philosophy is kind of the yin-yang. Mm. And in the image of Polly and Molly mm. sleeping mm. top to toe mm. in their bed, it's almost mm. this kind of mm. an encapsulation of their, right. of their compatibility as well as their differences. Mm. And I think that's one thing that this episode celebrates. I think there are two things to say. The first is that this is an ongoing recent conversation that we've been having in the podcast, which is that there, this is this is a closed system, and in, so this is I think that's what's behind this this phrase "never make a new old friend." Everything that happens stays in the relationship right. and yeah, is rattling yeah. around. And so, how do you deal with it? Well, you can rise above it, but it's still there and it still has taken place. The other um, beautiful vignette I think of an of a of a long term relationship is is this one. So there are two aspects of this. This is her just imagining what it would be like bringing him breakfast the next morning. She says, pumping the wrong end of the spoon up and down in his egg, wherever he learned that from. And I love to hear him falling up the stairs a morning with the cups rattling on the tray and then play with the cat she rubs up against you for her own sake. So there are two parts, right? There's the first part where she she knows specifically how he eats his eggs. And then also just just... How you get used to somebody, the noises somebody makes in in yeah. in, the, in the house, mm. and also actually that thing about breakfast, it, it struck me like mm. that. I was reading it. I suppose my my initial reaction to her response to whether she was going to make Leopold breakfast, you know, so she's, she's quite kind of resistant to the idea, and then mm. she said, "Oh, maybe I will." Then decides not to, and then kind of comes back around to the idea. And at first, I thought it was perhaps her resisting this attempt from 
Bloom to to dominate and to, to to express some sort of power over her. Yeah. But I actually wonder if it's more to do with you know because the way she talks about the, the affectionate way she talks about him rattling up the stairs. It's affection. It's affection. It's kind of like mm. no, in our relationship, you know, I don't want to. I'm, I don't want to make you breakfast, not because I don't want to make you breakfast, but because. I treasure this part. I, I treasure this yeah. dynamic. Yeah. Between yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so I, so I, I, I want to share something that this, this, this reading brought out in me as I reflected about my own parents um, mm. and mom and dad. If you're out there, uh, you've taught me quite a lot, and <laughs> I think this, this reading this chapter of Ulysses um, was was very was very resonant for me uh, in what a long term love affair between two people who are very different. Mm. Um, you know, she. Um, Molly Bloom and and Leopold Bloom, at least Leopold Bloom gets on Molly's nerves for sure, yeah. right? Um, and they something has broken down in their relationship, and they don't. They're talking past each other. They don't have the same uh, warmth in some ways. Mm-hmm. Certainly, uh, you know, in their in their romantic relationship, and yet, um, you know, something that my my um, I think my my mom told me this when she. Uh, you know, I had first uh, talked with a therapist about um, about relationships, and that uh, the therapist said that the 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 telltale sign that a couple is going to break up, the telltale sign is a long term couple, and you can and, and therapists who are trained they they can see it mm. right away, mm. is when um, one partner has a facial expression of disgust when Oof. talking about the other, Oof. and and um, and conversely, one sign that a couple has really great chance of staying together is when they value the same things in, in, in life, meaning that the same ideas of, of um, what is right and what is wrong, what, what's, what's good mm-hmm. and what is bad. And I think we see both of those here in this chapter. Number the first that, you know, Molly's disgust is more towards Boylan than anybody else. You know, that, that you know, Boylan is kind of a brute. Slapping her ass. Slapping her ass in the way out the door. Um, not really a good letter writer. Um, whereas, <laughs> whereas, whereas, which really matters to Molly, yeah, yeah. by the way. And one of the things that, that I, I got from this reading that I never, I never um, uh, noticed before <laughs> is when she says, I'll make him feel, I'll make him feel all over him till he half fates under me. Then he'll write about me, lover and mistress, publicly too, with our two photographs and all the papers when he becomes famous. Mm-hmm. So she actually really enjoys um, the idea of being written about. And I think we'll, mm-hmm. we'll, we'll see also how that reflects back to, to, to Joyce and, and, um, and Nora. Mm-hmm. But one of the fundamental things that Bloom and Molly agree on is that women should not be possessed. Mm-hmm. That's a fundamental and pretty radical opinion in 1904. Not only should they not be obsessed, but they should be running the show. They should be running the show. They should be running and the she, show. And she says, and she says, I don't care what anybody says. It'd be much better for the world to be governed by the women in it. You wouldn't see women going and killing one another and slaughtering. When do you ever see mm. women rolling around drunk like they do or gambling every penny they have or losing it on horses? Yes. I mean, this yeah. is a point of great convergence. And yeah. my parents, fundamentally, even though they live very different uh, rhythms of, of life and sometimes get on each other's nerves, they they both would agree fundamentally with yeah. that, with yeah. that, fundamentally. And and that's why they just celebrated their 43rd anniversary. And oh. mom and dad, I love you. And uh, <laughs> and and you've and you've and you've taught me uh, as Bloom and, and Molly have taught me what the the real um, mm. uh, the real. Um, ups and downs and truth and beauty of a of a marriage is like yeah i think um you know you read that you read that passage where she calls for women to be in charge and you think it, my mind immediately went back to bloom in lystragonian surrounded by all these men eating meats and getting drunk and and shit talking and and he's 
rising above it by eating his cheese sandwich, not drinking and not engaging. And whether, I mean, he says it explicitly, but he also, how he acts implies that he's, that men should not be running the show. Final question. very well put. So, I mean, this is the the end of the book. This is the end, guys. We're at the end. But what kind of ending or, sorry to bring it down, but what kind of climax Mm. is, is this? Alice, what do you think? Um... So I want to pick up on the word yes, because I think that, again, kind of going back to Colleen's point that um, Molly has been monstrously misread over the years, that the yeses at the end... So I guess that I would pull back and say, um, what role are the yeses playing in this episode? And for me, the yes is an unstable yes. It has it has a device as a, as a framework in the sense that it's the non-grammatical way of signalling a pause or a moment of self-confirmation before the flow of Molly's thoughts flow on again. Um, Colleen writes that their markers to help the reader also to draw a breath before plunging into the next verbal ma- maelstrom. So there's there's that, um, but I also think that her yes throughout and her final yes are more complicated than her just riding along um, and agreeing to everything. I mean, I think the first thing to think about is the way that women and young girls are socialized from a very young age to agree and to get along and to say yes, um, simply. Um, I think before we end with the final yes, it's worth noting that there are moments um, in the beginning of the episode where she makes clear that she's she's holding back from giving all and and giving up everything emotionally. So um, this is on page 178 when she's not given over to complete inhibition. Um, and Lex mentioned this point earlier. Um, he made me cry, of course, a woman is so sensitive about everything. I was fuming myself after after for giving in so there's a sense of she doesn't want to give in totally because then she's vulnerable uh later the very next page um she describes the fight they had and she says i was rolling the potato cakes there's something i want to say to you only for i put him off letting on i was in a temper with my hands and arms full of pastry flour in any case i let out too much the night before talking so she's again she's holding back and she's not in other words, this yes is not like 100% yes. She's giving 60%, 70%, but she's preserving because that's what I think women have to do now as then, um, holding on to that 30%, 40%. Um, there's also the yes of when he's sick versus when she's sick. So she's hiding some of her her suffering. Um, so when he um, cuts his toe, she has to help him bandage it up and, and douse it. And she says, I really don't like doing this. And then she says of herself, um, if it was a thing that I was sick, then we'd see what attention only, of course, the woman hides it, not go give all the trouble they do. So again, she's, this, isn't, this isn't her fully, fully expressed um, yet. Uh, we we learn elsewhere that men in the past have pestered her to say yes. We learn that she uh, knows how to say no. So she says, I had to say no for form's sake. Um, so all of that, I think, is context for the final yes, which is itself um, slippery or unstable because, um, and Kybert makes this point, that 
in the 1980s, American scholars in particular weren't ready to concede this yes as the yes of an orgasm. Rather, they saw it as yes to love and to life <laughs> in the spirit of Stephen's definition of literature as the affirmation of mankind. Um, questions follow, of course, is this the yes of an orgasm? Is this an acceptance of marriage? Or <laughs> more uh, monstrously, is this a lifetime of social conditioning? So I, I think that's a very, that's a very profound reading. I, I, I um, was also struck by the fact that she says that day I got him to propose to me. Yes. And so you, we picture ourselves on the hill and, and the question is who, who's, who's yes is this, that, that she has been asked um, by Poldy to marry her. She doesn't give him an answer right away. She says, she, I asked him with my eyes to ask again. And she says, the day we were lying among the rhododendrons on Hoth Head, the day I got him to propose to me. Yes. And the more you push on this unstable yes, as you put it, Alice, mm. the, the, mm. the slippier and more recursive it gets. It's yeah. Bloom's yes. It's Molly's yes. It's Bloom's yes. It's Molly's yes. And it's, it's the figure eight. It's the, the sign of infinity. Eight is the number of sentences in, in Penelope. Uh, eight is uh, Molly's birthday, September 8th. Um, and eight is the figure that they're lying head to toe uh, in the bed. And the yes is... And infinity is, infinity is the... Joyce put as the time as the, takes so so that the the yes has this has this quality of of infinity that um i i we can read and we'll be reading infinitely these last two pages and, and, I, and I think that feeds yeah. into uh, returning to the question about what kind of climax this is it's, it's, it's no kind of climax at all actually this is uh, an opening Rather yeah, than yeah, closing. yeah, exactly. Explicitly, every day that ends, another day begins. Mm, well, yeah, mm. and explicitly, Joyce puts in a lot of things. He 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 doesn't gather together the loose threads. He adds loose threads. Yeah, so she talks about this yeah. lover, Gardner, who <laughs> Bloom has never heard of. When Bloom does great, that, great, not another one. <laughs> <laughs> who, you know, Molly had this passionate affair. Who had not died in the Boer War? Like this was something which, when Bloom made the list of Molly's past lovers, Gardner didn't list, no. there anywhere <laughs> at all. Um, and likewise, I think this kind of the ambiguity yeah. of the of the yes is very much a part of it. Likewise, the, the, mm. the you know we're talking about this sense of infinity. You know, what comes after Ulysses? Finnegan's Wake. Now, <laughs> a spoiler, alert, spoiler alert: if you haven't read Finnegan's Wake, as I haven't, for mm. one thing, I know about it, and a lot of people know about it, is that the beginning and the end loop into each other. Uh, so Finnegan's Wake mm. is essentially an eternal mm. book. So Ubers. I think Ubers, what, yeah. I think what Joyce is is doing here is saying yes yeah, as you said you know this is a new day starting this is a mm. new story starting this is you know the i guess the the, the infinity of human experience mm. so this is an opening out rather than yeah closing, closing down this is yeah. the anti-climax of of Ulysses. well as, as we get to the very final moments here of this of this bloomcast um and of this book um there's there's one last thing i wanted to add about joyce and nora because i think one could look at this chapter as um, as a gift to Nora, as as James Joyce's, um, because they 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 famously had a really good marriage, right? Sylvia Beach apparently, yeah, yeah um, I read said this. that that they had the happiest marriage yeah. of any of any writers. Right. Um, 
that that she knew of any writers. I mean, that's a, that's a very that's a that's a very clear caveat. So, so my my last quotation of Frank Budgeon on this on this podcast, um, he writes again. Joyce is drinking buddy and and consular officer in Zurich, um, which they drank uh, white wine together, which Joyce said was like electricity. And um, hmm. Joyce said to Budgeon regarding this soliloquy, uh, Joyce, according to Budgeon, said this is the indispensable countersign to Bloom's passport to eternity. Now, what does that mean, right? That's a, that's a pretty heavy phrase. <laughs> yeah, what does that mean? So if, if Ithaca puts Bloom in contact with the stars, with the constellations, with the water and yeah. the pipes, with the, all yeah. the parts of this closed system that's in this, this figure-eight system that, mm. that is Dublin in, in 1904 and is our universe um, today, um, it's incomplete without this soliloquy. And how might we think about that? Well, James Joyce himself, extremely intelligent and sad as a young person his father had was you know driving the family into poverty his mother mm -hmm. died a horrific death of cancer and as we've seen from this book um made um Stephen I mean Stephen Dedalus is was literally a, uh, an alter ego of Joyce that he created you know made uh Joyce feel terrible for not having uh, prayed for her and for having departed the Christian faith. Joyce had been educated by Jesuits who learned it as they were and greater Aristotelians as they were, um, you know, held the specter of hell and hellfire and burning torment. Can you imagine? I mean, thank God none mm. of the three of us grew up with being told that your natural desires were going to cause you to go to eternal hellfire. And then yeah, he meets I'm Nora. <laughs> Did you did you did you grow up with that? I was going to say I dated a Jesuit. So. I dated a Jesuit, so, so so Alice knows, and maybe she redeemed him in the way that Nora redeemed Joyce. But he meets he he meets he meets Nora, and his whole life changes. This June sixteenth, nineteen oh four, was a day when they first went out. Mm. He, he had met her ten days before. She had stood him up on June fourteenth. He writes <laughs> he writes her on June 15th saying, I'd love to see you. I looked for you. You weren't there. Shoot, you know, will you like to see me? And they go out on June 16th. And his life was changed. Um, you know, Elman, the biographer, writes that that Joyce would tell her later, you made me a man. And I wrote this in when I when I saw Molly's line about um, it didn't make me blush. Why should it either? It's only nature. Yeah. And Nora <laughs> like it's really emotional saying Nora liberated. This young Catholic kid wound mm -hmm. up in his own mind, liberated him from fear and shame mm -hmm. and connected him to another human being and to the world. And he went on a tear. That summer, he started writing Dubliners. His first story in Dubliners got published. He 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 totally transformed his, his manuscript of what was called Stephen Hero into mm -hmm. what became a portrait of the artist of the young man. They left in October. This happened in June. They leave mm -hmm. in October for Europe and they spend the entire rest of their lives in the European continent. Yeah. She changed Joyce's life. Yeah. And, and what better gift could he give her than the deepest gift he could summon from himself, which was the gift of mm. this book. This mm. book is mm. Joyce's gift to mm. Nora. Mm. And the, the great epilogue of that story, of course, is that when the psychologist Carl Jung wrote to Joyce, saluting the insights contained in Penelope, I'm quoting Kybert here, Nora laconically opined that Jim knows nothing at all about women. <laughs> <laughs> so married couples will recognize. <laughs> Although, in fact, Jim. the other thought is that she just didn't actually read this. She, she didn't. But that didn't wasn't the care. point. He and gave her the greatest gift. That's not who she is. Yeah. And Joyce didn't want her to be, Joyce did not want Nora to be anything else. And, and, yeah. and that's what gives me hope for Bloom and, and mm. Molly is that mm. Bloom doesn't want to change. You can't, this is the great lesson from this book. You can't 
change people. You can only try to understand them. Mm. And in trying to understand and in being understood, that's when you can begin to change. Yeah. And that's a profound wisdom that that just flies off the page of this book. Yeah. And I think this this point about uh, religion, this is what I said in my synopsis about how um, her mentioning of flowers awakens her sense of marvel at nature. And she can't imagine that anyone could doubt the existence of God, given the stupendous phenomena of the natural world. And in some ways, she's recast, you know, she's understanding profoundly how deeply religious choices and she's giving him a new religion which is one of you know as you say epicureanism enjoying life mm. so he can be religious and he can and he can believe in god in the world and he doesn't have to be self-lacerating and depressed about it i think that's it i mean as you said Lex, you know you can't you can't change somebody but you can bring out the best sides of their personality you can kind of yeah. liberate them from indulging the worst side and encourage them right. to to bring out the best so she understood his religio re religiosity and she gave him a new way to channel the re religiosity into nature and into art and that's the countersign that's the mm. countersign of his passport to mm. eternity and it wasn't just nora it was nora and sylvia beach and Harriet <laughs> and margaret and, and lex paulson and, and adam biles and alice <laughs> but especially the the queer women who are the true reason why this book was 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 uh was published in satellite of day so one last tribute to them i can't see a better note on which to end this um this episode i think uh. we'll keep any notables other points can, can i just add one noticeable because my 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 wife is about it, to give birth it, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be blame no. cast if, if we didn't, didn't have one, if we didn't one last say. um so so um, can i just uh... I, I my my phone is next to me here because any moment i'm gonna get the note that um my wife is going into labor and uh and she'll have a daughter and she will be called penelope and so <laughs> In in the in in, in the honor in the Rattus. honor of, of 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 my wife and and our and our baby that's coming, um, so this this line from from Molly Bloom. I went up Windmill Hill to the flats that Sunday morning. I wore that frock from the Bee Marché Paris and the coral necklace, the straits shining. I could see over to Morocco, almost the Bay of Tangier, oh. white and the Atlas Mountain with snow on it and the straits like a river so clear. My daughter, who will be born in Paris, whose ancestors lived in the Atlas Mountains. Um, this is for you. This is for you. Come and see us on Bloomsday, June the 16th in Paris, Shakespeare and Company, the American Library. Um, until then, thank you. Well, first of all, as the final time we're hosting at Shakespeare and Company, Alice, Lex, thank you so much oh, thank you, for Adam. throwing yourselves into this project in in a way I could never have anticipated. And <laughs> for making the experience of reading and rereading and rereading this book something more profound and enjoyable mm. than I could have hoped for. Thank you both so much. Um, thank you all for listening. Do, as I say, come to Paris on the 16th of June. You will not regret it. No. There's gonna, it's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be... A lot of readings. There's going to be a lot of heart bearing um, and merrymaking. Merrymaking, indeed. There will be music. There will be the live Bloomcast from the American Library yeah. in the evening. If you can't make it, you can join us on Zoom. Mm. You can send in your questions to Ulysses at shakespeareandcompany.com. Until then, <laughs> thanks for listening. Happy reading. À très bientôt. <laughs>